0: This is a News Laundry Podcast and you're listening to NL Interviews. So welcome to a News Laundry Podcast. I'm Abhinandan and I am thrilled and feel extremely fortunate to have not just wonderful subscribers who subscribe and pay to keep news free and support News Laundry, but many of our subscribers are extremely accomplished, two of whom are joining me on this podcast. In fact, this idea had come from many of you subscribers that since we have such a wonderful pool of subscribers, why don't we have a discussion with subscribers who have some sort of expertise in public health and related disciplines on this corona outbreak, which has kind of paralyzed the world. So I'm joined by two such subscribers, Bhargav Krishna. Hi, Bhargav.
1: Hi, Vinod. Thanks for having
0: me. Yes, thank you for coming, and Atif, Adam, right? Is that how pronounce it, Atif? Yes, that's right. So I shall just quickly introduce you with your wonderful uh, accomplishments to our audience and then we can get straight into the discussion about COVID. Well, Bhargav is a doctor of public health student at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and adjunct faculty at the Public Health Foundation of India. He holds degrees in biotechnology and environmental science. He managed the Centre for Environmental Health at the Public Health Foundation of India. He was leading research and teaching on environmental health at the foundation before he joined Harvard. He's been a member of the Government of India Expert Committee on Air Pollution and Biomedical Waste and has led work with the central and state governments on air pollution, climate change and health systems. His work's been funded by WHO, Rockefeller Foundation, Packard Foundation, Environmental Defence Fund, U.S. National Institutes of Health and other agencies. So that is your list of degrees, etc. Bhargav, and you have decided to study even more.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not formally trained in public health, but I was working in public health for a few years, so thought might as well. <laughs>
0: so at this, at so what are you studying at Harvard exactly now?
1: So right now, my work is focused on um, air pollution and how it affects um, health both in the short and the long term so for instance, in the short term, how does it affect um, ex- excesses of how do extremes of air pollution affect short term um, in in terms of mortality for instance, and in the long term, how does air pollution affect the, the formation of, uh, of chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease and hypertension things like that
0: I see and Atif Adam he holds joint faculty appointments in the Department of Mental Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Jocelyn Diabetes Center, Harvard Medical School. Is that how you pronounce it, Jocelyn, Atif? Yes, yes, that's correct. And his research focuses on utilizing systems thinking approaches to better understand and model chronic disease, epidemiology, healthy aging and multi-scale mental health resilience. So I guess uh, your first discipline, chronic disease epidemiology, that's exactly where we are with this COVID. Is that right?
2: Um, It's getting to that point. I think the infectious disease uh, outbreak as this proceeds on will impact not only um, the inflammatory state that the individuals are in, but it also affects um, existing health comorbidities that people come in, come with. Um, So that's a conversation that's going to eventually come up as this pandemic moves forward. I see. You're also the Co-Founder and Chief Scientific Officer at ROSE. It's a mental health
0: startup that leverages artificial intelligence to simplify the process for patients to seek and receive mental health care. So thank you both, first of all, for supporting News Laundry and making the time to do this. You are sitting in the US, both of you are in Boston, is that right? That is correct. Yeah. So, uh, and, and is Boston in lockdown or can you guys move around?
1: we've been issued uh, stay-at-home orders essentially by the state so non-essential moment unless you are going to buy groceries or something like that it's advice that you have to stay at home Uh, so we are we've all been basically sitting at home for the last couple of weeks at least i see
0: okay and let me come to you first atif um this modeling that you know i know very little about the subject of you know in the last 10, 15 days, I guess all of us have had to read up a lot to try to figure out what's happening, not from a journalistic curiosity point of view, but purely for self-preservation. Now, there is this one particular model, and uh, I'm terrible with names, but this particular individual uh, whose interview was at Barkha, who had said, predicted two or three million people would die. Uh, did you see that? Lakshmi, Dr.
1: Ramanan Lakshminarayan. Yeah, Ramanan Lakshminarayan.
0: So, uh, you know, that generated some kind of debate that, you know, what is this model? What is it predicting? What are these models based on? And how accurately can we take the predictions? Because today, I think uh, there was this one report that I saw uh, that another model, I think which the um, Bloomberg or a very uh, reputed news agency had kind of uh, put a report on. Of course, they haven't done the report, but it's a report uh, which is reporting on a model that predicts some twenty to thirty million,
2: you know, deaths. How are these models created, and how seriously can we take them? And and that's a great great question. So, uh, the basic premise of any model is to look at historical trends um, and to learn from those trends to forecast forward. So you're basically looking at what happened before, what's happening right now, and see what could be a best worst case scenario. When we build our models, a thing that we tend to focus on is not the results of the model itself, not the X number of people that will die, et cetera, because there's so much variability, especially in a condition like COVID-19, where day to day, as we're learning more about the disease, the immunity profile changes, the the, the long-term projection changes. So those numbers are based on static information that you have that gets dated as soon as you put it out. What's more important when you build, build these models is to look at what actions can you prioritize to turn the direction of those numbers because at the end of the day um, for policymakers, for states and for other organizations you want to know can we work in the simulation frameworks to understand what action should we have first short-term mid-term long-term that will help like uh, flatten the curve as well as plan ahead so i the from a stats point of view, these models all make sense. But I think the the focus on the models, the way the media picks it up, the way the numbers are highlighted more than the downstream outcomes that the models are supposed to focus on, I think that has been misplaced. And I think that's something that is it's not something that's easy to do, but it's again, it's, it's, um, it's something that models are better at. Okay, that's actually very
0: valuable to know. So what you're saying is that it's not that these many will die because you want to know Kitne that's not what really the models are used for or should be used for. It's respect to the number, this is the kind of action one needs to take to reduce the numbers no matter what those
2: numbers be. So we should sure, not expect it, the numbers. I mean, a simple example is financial projections, stock market projections, right? You have numbers that say this stock will go up or down based on a five-month, six-month, one-year trend. You can't say I will make so much money. No... No investment banker or no uh, portfolio holder is going to guarantee you increases and 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 decreases. What they'll say if you do something this way, if you keep things better this way, you might see an upward trend. Uh, what can you do? Should you should you move your money around? How should you proportion your stock portfolio around? That's the advice that's given, and that's where these models come in. I think taking those numbers and running with it has been the major downturn, and um and yeah. Okay, that's that's useful to know.
0: Uh, now, Bhargav, um, first of all, hope you're well. I haven't seen you in, I think, two years. We met when I was there, I think, 2019, right? That's right. So, uh, Bhargav, uh, give me three scenarios. You know, you've been in public health for a long time. I, I'm sure you've studied maybe not something exactly like this, but something's you know at a macro level, that how it plays out at a national or international level. I mean, how can this end? How will this turn out? Like, a you know, worst case scenario, X amount. Okay, let's not talk numbers, but we will not have a cure. So there will have to be some level of lockdown in every country for the next foreseeable future or B, why did SARS suddenly vanish? I remember when I had come to Singapore, I think it was 2002 or 2004. Uh, I was on a shoot and everyone was wearing masks. I was the only, I think me and there were seven other people on the aircraft because no one was going to Singapore. Right. And then suddenly it went. I mean, none of us got injections or anything. Like five months later, everyone was flying in and out of Singapore. Can that happen? Or, you know, this whole, will we get immune, this herd immunity theory? Tell me what are the possible outcomes of this? And one more related question, if you can tell me, does anybody really know what the fuck is happening? Because honestly, I've spoken to some people who I'm not at liberty to name, but who are at both national and international levels in responsible positions. I didn't get an idea that they really knew what, what the hell is happening.
1: So let's take those one by one and let me start with the first one how does this end i think the there are two ways that this ends right one is there are enough people in your population who are immune so that this this doesn't even if even if they are exposed to the virus they don't become a case and they don't suffer from the illness that is associated with it the principle of herd immunity is based on this right where you have enough of the population that is that is immune to the disease in, immune to the virus and so it's such that even people who are infected would not be able to transmit or infect other individuals within the population. So that takes time. That would take several months. And in the case of SARS, uh, from what I've read, it's taken between six to eight months for that to happen globally. Um, In this case,
0: That's for SARS, you said six to eight months?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so it's when when people became immune that SARS became less of a threat. There are newer, this is also another virus which is similar to that, but different in certain ways. But the, the reality is that it takes a while for this kind of immunity to build up within a population. The reason why you institute policies like lockdowns, for instance, that many countries have put in place right now, is not because you don't want people to build up immunity. Everybody wants people to build up immunity within the population. But in the in the time that people are building up immunity, you don't want your health systems to be overloaded with people who are coming in, coming in with severe um, versions of the of the illness themselves. So, for instance, if you have uh, in this in the particular case that we're talking about with COVID, it's acute respiratory distress, where people are showing up having severe difficulty in breathing they're having all kinds of other associated respiratory uh, symptoms and you're essentially having to quarantine them because you don't have a cure for this neither is there a vaccine available and so you don't want this build up on your health system where it gets overloaded and then you're not able to treat people who are getting infected um, the second way this could end is potentially with uh, the introduction of a vaccine. Now, there are several vaccine trials that are running around the world right now. In fact, the WHO and other international organizations and national organizations have made the, the criteria for human trials in, for, in the case of this particular vaccine less stringent in the hope that it would fast track the development of a vaccine. But it's still unclear what the, the time horizon is for that to happen. This, these are the two ways in which it could end. For the first part, building up herd immunity, what we're seeing is it could take six to eight months, um, anywhere between six to eight months around the world for this to happen.
0: So you think there is scientific history or evidence of this herd immunity actually happening? And SARS is that example.
1: Yes, and it's it's happened with virtually every, every infectious disease that we're talking about, apart from certain cases like, say, HIV, AIDS, malaria, or things like that. At least for respiratory illnesses like this, herd immunity does build up over time.
0: Tuberculosis is TB one such example. I mean, I heard someone uh, you know say uh, that 50% of Indians actually have the TB. What TB is a virus or is it a virus? Is it's what what is TB?
1: Now, TB is a bacterial disease, but then in this case, TB is, is slightly different in that you could have, uh, you could be infected with uh, the tuberculosis, so you could have, you could, it could be essentially what is called latent TB, but you don't turn into an active case, you only turn into an active case when some kind of incident happens where you're either immunocompromised or you have some kind of comorbidity that makes it conducive for the, for the, the disease to take hold. So the, the general thumb rule is that uh, three out of every five Indians have probably been exposed to tuberculosis in their lifetime at some point because we do have a really large number of cases. Um, and they do actually take precautions even in this country when Indian students come here to make sure that you do have a TB test to show that you are, um, you are you don't, you're not a carrier of the, of the disease. I see. So I, I, for instance, when I came to the U.S., I had to take a TB test as well. And, but that is, it's a slightly different kind of scenario with TB.
0: I see. So it's not comparable to a, vi- a viral like the one we're in, COVID. Okay. I see. The, my second question was that, does anyone in the world really know what's happening? I mean, are we just, a lockdown, are we just preventing a crisis and kicking the can down the road? Or do you believe that there is any government or state machinery which has a pretty good idea of a plan that how they're going to tackle this So are we just moving from week to week month to month
1: see it is a it is a real challenge right because you're working under conditions of uncertainty all of these models that Arthur are talking about uh, they're all built on data and the more data you add into that model the more accurate it becomes the more you're able to show what the trends are going to be like going forward and in the absence of that data it is important that you exercise the precautionary principle and take any steps that you can to ensure that broad health of the population is maintained which is what most governments are doing right now i think even in the us right now you can see that certain states have instituted complete lockdowns some states are saying we don't think the economic benefit of or sorry the economic impact of going into a lockdown is really worth it those are the kinds of decisions that policymakers are having to take right now and it's i can understand you can sympathize with them that it's really hard to take these kinds of decisions in the face of uncertainty but you do really have to Put the precautionary principle up front again when you're coming to situations like this. Some countries have done spectacularly well. Uh, So, for instance, South Korea, after starting out initially with a very rapid spread, thanks to one particular super spreader um, in that country, instituted a complete lockdown. They also did tremendous amounts of, of testing and contact tracing of every case and every person who came into contact with that case, and they have managed to bend the curve. Japan has also done similar things. China, of course, locked down an entire province, which is kind of unheard of. Um, but these are all measures that are being considered in different parts of the world.
0: Okay. Dr. Adam, um, as a medical practitioner, can you tell us um, if you have anything to add to what Bhargav said, those two points, please feel free, but also take this question after that. You know, I, I mean, personally for me, and I know many others, we kind of oscillate between you know, paranoia ki bhai lagta hai, oh, are my lungs feeling... Because, you know, when you hear that uh, you'll feel a constriction in your lungs, you feel breathless. Now, suddenly, I'm thinking when I'm doing my yoga in the morning, are my mom breathless than I was yesterday? You know, you start imagining stuff. So, from paranoia to you know, 80% or 90% of the people who get it are cured by just not even going to the hospital, having crocin at home and resting. Like, where are on those two extremes? How... Concern should one be, and uh, on the public health emergency, how do you think the world is handling this? Any specific cases where you think they seem to know what they're doing, uh, and, and America, uh, you know, you can tell us what's happening there as well.
2: No, and, and those are great questions. Just adding to what Bhargav said, um, yeah, the, the idea with herd immunity, the the conceptually, just like Bhargav said, it's same across diseases. With SARS, um, the, the the 2003 outbreak, and currently, I think what the uncertainty really comes down to is the infection duration and the next steps. For herd immunity to, to really work, you need to have at least a decent understanding of what infection spread, spread is, which we know is worse than the one in 2003, but we also need to know um, what the downstream consequences are. Is it is it going to uh, reinfect people and things like that? So I think that idea makes estimated numbers of when herd immunity is a plausible scenario seem less tempting, but it is of course a tempting scenario. But it's unlikely, is that right? It's 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 unlikely that we will come to a point where herd immunity is never reached, just based on the way herd immunity scenarios run. It will come at some point. It's just how soon, how later, what the consequences of waiting till that happens, and the cost that that we have to uh, set ourselves up for. That's what is uncertainty. I think uh, we just we just don't know enough about what happens. people who have had immunity, how long does immunity stay, to make accurate predictions at the moment. It will happen downstream, it's just not right now, like Pargov said, hence the six to eight month time span to understand it. Um, The second question on, does anyone know? I think the way we operate are in silos, right? So it's like a jigsaw puzzle, we really know well about what we are doing, but in situations like this, which is emergency preparedness situations, We really need to connect So the the networking of these silos enables information to be shared and you get a larger picture. What we're seeing right now is more reactive planning. It's almost like fixing a leaky balloon. You have different people trying different ideas. They work, they don't work, you don't know. Eventually, we'll come to a point, just like said, countries like South Korea, Japan, China, who took drastic measures... um, and and that has flattened the curve. That that has curbed further outbreaks. We don't know how long that will stay, but that that has done significant impact in, in creating more a uh, burden on the health system. So we can learn from that. And I think those scenarios are what we need to learn from and take back and see how we can rather than copy and paste what they did, because that's never the right thing, is pick up key things from these countries, see what we can we can learn from what we can't do, and then create public messaging. Uh, that seems appropriate. Uh, so th- to your second question, the third question about that fear. Uh, I wake up every morning with allergies and I think that I have COVID, COVID-19. So I think that fear is going to be around for a bit, that you you think you have shortness of breath, you think that you might have a dry cough. And that's completely acceptable. And I think the messaging, the uncertainty or the, the actual symptoms that are portrayed online on what COVID is, is both... True, as well as we don't know enough to say, is it, is it asymptomatic only? Can you come in with uh, decent symptoms? So I would say right now, the, the, the larger push should be on staying at home, even if you're sick, uh, understanding what symptoms you have. And then once you feel that you have enough symptoms that you think need to be addressed, don't go rushing to your nearest health officer or, or health center. I think you need to call the appropriate numbers. Every government has set that up and make sure you go to appropriate channels. Because where we live right now, at least in my my area of Boston, there aren't enough kits. So even if I said I had symptoms, I just can't go get myself tested. Uh, Everyone recommends just staying at home and and doing the best you can to self-isolate yourself. I also do believe that the messaging within institutional groups within Harvard and other institutions have been very good In reacting to this, but that those messaging don't necessarily translate to everyone outside those institutions. And there's again that disconnect. Um, At this point, there's nothing that I can say that will change what's happening. All, All I will say, just adding to what Bhargav said, is stay at home, self quarantine yourself. If you do feel you have symptoms, if you fall in that high risk category of being elderly, having existing comorbid conditions like diabetes, hypertension or other inflammatory conditions, then do take precautionary measures. Um, But at this point, staying safe is the best thing we can do.
0: Okay. uh, I'm diabetic, but I'm a very fit diabetic. I mean, I keep my sugar Uh under control. I was diagnosed diabetic, but I don't consider myself high risk. I mean, I still go out, um, you know, twice a week to work and stuff. But so you're saying someone who's a diabetic who's sugar levels aren't within control is higher risk, right? A a diabetic with controlled sugar levels whose regular exercise and stuff would not be high risk.
2: So the way SARS-CoV-2 acts, it acts on the inflammatory responses in in the body. So conditions that uh, exacerbate that inflammation like diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and other conditions that are more chronic diseases tend to put people at higher risk. So the fact that you have an existing... Inflammatory condition, whether it be controlled or not controlled, puts you in that category. Be it that you are um, that you've con- that you've kept c- things under control, that's fine. But you just have to be aware that um, you are in that group that might progress really fast, and you just have to be aware of that. I see. Now, um, Bhargav, from
0: uh, you know, you guys are at the world's finest institutions that are in the area of public health and also medicine have governments approached your organizations, your professors, your heads of departments? Is the solution to this tapping into the, these kind of networks that, uh, you know, Artif was also talking about? Or, uh, I mean, like, can we expect that there's a lab at Harvard trying to figure out a vaccine while there may be one at some university in China? Is that how it works, like you see in the films?
1: So... To some extent, the government in this country, at least, has reached out, and both that, that includes both state and uh, federal government. I know for a fact that folks at Harvard, at my school, for instance, have been involved in in doing the uh, projections for the U.S. On, on what the future burden is going to look like, and uh, aiding in, in developing some kind of policy response to this. Now, whether the federal government is taking that into account or not, we don't really know. From what um, Mark Lipsitch, who's a who's a fantastic infectious disease epidemiologist at the school, says, it appears to be that... There is some pushback from the federal government, but there is a there is a fair amount of contribution from the academic community that is going into the disease modeling side of things on the on the development of the vaccine piece. I think a lot of that does happen at universities, but a fair amount of it is also happening within the private sector in this country. Um, and that, it, in addition to vaccines, it's also true for the the testing kits. The U.S. chose not to use the the WHO standardized protocol and testing kits to test for uh, COVID nineteen, but they chose to develop their own and the CDC along with other private and public institutions has been working to fill that gap.
0: Why is that? Why did the US government choose not to use the ones approved by WHO?
1: This is a good question. I don't know if we really have an answer to that question. Nobody has really said anything about it in public. Um, I would just say that the US and the WHO usually have a very uh, complicated relationship.
0: Atif, would you venture a speculative guess on why the US government would not want to use the WHO approved kits?
2: Uh, not any more than what Bhargav said. I think at this point, um, on hindsight, it's always 2020, so it might not have been the best of decisions, but I'm sure they made the decision considering uh, what CDC was already doing. They did have a parallel uh, testing kit um, in process. It, um, it, it wasn't as successful, and, 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 that's, and, and that's something that happened, but um, I'm sure it was made because some things were already underway in the U.S. CDC is Center for Disease Control and
0: Prevention. It is a U.S. government agency, is that right? That is correct. Okay. So, Bhargav, sorry, coming back to you. um, Now, you know, you mentioned these testing kits. Now, I have heard, uh, you know, two versions and and both these are from people who are involved in medicine. That, I mean, in India, it's taking two to three days because I think it has to be cultured when they take the swab. I mean, they stick a swab deep up your nose that you feel is going to touch your brain, I guess um i mean i've had that experience when i had dengue long ago but i'll I'll come to that later and then it is sent somewhere and it takes two days yet i'm reading articles that in korea you drive you sit they come they take something they come back to you in half an hour and they tell you whether you're positive or negative like what's happening i mean is there a two day wait period to get tested or is it a 20 minute process so- can you inform that
1: i mean there are different different types of tests that are being used in different parts of the world i will say that it's also in india the the initial challenge was that it was testing was restricted to uh, icmr approved facilities which were in different parts of the country and the turnaround time was between two and three days now i believe that has been ramped up there are 112 government facilities plus another 30 odd private facilities which have been approved around the country for these tests to be conducted the only hope is that this is scaled up much more quickly. I, I, I believe that India has placed a large order for these testing kits as well in the hope that this could be done in a, in a much more streamlined and rapid fashion than it is being done right now.
0: I see. Atif, uh, coming back to you, you know, I'll just give you a bit of an... I mean, my experience. I got a dengue back in 99. Uh, and at that time, it was called dengue hemorrhagical fever. Is, am I pronouncing that correctly? Hemorrhagical? How do you say it when you hemorrhage? That's fine. Okay. So yeah, I, you say, I, yeah, my nose started bleeding and then it wouldn't stop. I mean, first I had fever, you know, i figured I just had fever and then my nose started bleeding. And in summer, you know, I often used to get nose bleeds and then it wouldn't stop like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes. So then I said, okay, this is serious shit. And then uh, I went to the hospital. Luckily the doctor was really good. He saw me, he saw the doctor. So he says, this guy's got dengue and he's hemorrhage. And they stuck these things deep up my nose to stop the bleeding, it, you know, to it, feel it's going to touch your brain. It's really painful. But 2001-2 two onwards, the strain of dengue that is in Delhi is like you get fever for a week. It's it's a minor thing. It's not a big deal. But I remember in the 90s, if you got dengue, people would look at you and very sadly that you may not make it because you know there was just one kind of dengue in Delhi. Can something like happen with this that there is this kind of dengue and now there's the dengue which you just get for like a week and you're fine?
2: I mean, the, the, the dengue is by virus also. So you can compare the flu... That comes seasonally in the U.S. and some countries where um, it. I mean, the the flu still kills about twelve thousand people in the U.S., so that's still a significant number. And they do, and we do have flu season where we all we all have to go get vaccines. I'm sure when it was originally planned out, there was that social stigma uh, for having the flu, and I think over time, once you get more uh, appropriate to it, the government kind of pushes the right messaging out. The the scale of impact also comes down. Uh, just like Bhargav said, I think what, if you really think of it, there's two groups of people in the situation, right? There's group A, which is all the health system workers and, and and everybody doing their best to do the work for the situation. There's group B, which is everybody else. The idea is to not overburden group A that they can't see everyone because they, they literally can't. They, it's hard for even the bestest of health systems to take care of everyone. So eventually when a disease like this starts off, that fear response is always there. But in countries like South Korea, Japan, China, and even some parts of um, India and Pakistan where infectious outbreak has been more common, the responses to this immediate turnaround has been, hasn't been as severe as the States or UK. So I think over time, the symptomology might come down, especially with the disease being very similar. The, the viruses are very similar. Uh, we can't... Anyway, say that if there's a new type of coronavirus 10 years from now, will that have drastic effects or not? We can't. The only difference between the coronavirus for SARS and this is one spike protein, and that's caused it to be completely different, more infectious and more durable outside. So it's it's hard to say, but the social responses, the social stigma can definitely uh, come down over time. But what happened to the old dengue
0: where people used to die? I mean, are they still dying? The media just doesn't cover it? Or has, does that dengue not happen anymore?
2: I, I, would, you know, I wouldn't be the best person to say So I'm not going to say something inappropriate. I'm sure it's a different strain. It could be. I just don't know enough on the top of my head to answer that question um, in a way that our, our readers can take back right Abhargav, do you want to just come in on that like like what happened there was
0: is that is that dengue still there in Delhi because I know you're, you're from Delhi uh, we just don't hear about it because it's old news it's been done to death or now that old dengue doesn't exist it's just the new minor dengue that exists.
1: No, I think dengue still does exist. I think we've become better at controlling outbreaks to some extent with respect to mosquito-borne diseases, and we've become better at treating people who have dengue also. So it's, it's a combination of both of those things. There's a lot more awareness about dengue and about malaria than there used to be 10, 15 years ago. People are much more conscious about making sure during, like, Um, the rainy season for instance that there's no standing water around their households the government does an excellent job in putting out messaging to ensure that people are aware that this is the season that this happens so i would say that there is a there's a combination of observation bias where initially when it happened there was a tremendous amount of reporting on it because this is the thing that's happening right now and now i think we've become a little bit better at handling the issue
0: okay now both of you are public health Professionals, uh, you know, one of you that practiced as a, you know, medical, as a doctor, this entire debate may seem heartless, uh, but now I see a lot of very reasonable people also talking in these terms that if we shut everything down in a country like India, uh, the deaths from starvation and being pushed into poverty may actually be bigger than the deaths that will happen on account of this virus. The only difference is that in a case of a lockdown and a completely jammed economy, the people who will die are just the poor. Whereas if we carry on as usual, the death will be sprinkled across social economic brackets. And therefore we should let the economy carry on because the loss of life will be the same both ways. But in the case of happening in normal circumstances, it will be more even spread or democratic. I mean, it sounds almost clinical and heartless, but I mean, you, you get what I'm saying, right? There is that debate on how long can we just shut everything down? We will run out of food at some point.
1: I think that's uh, so. If I, I, if you can come in after me, but I think just to answer this question, I think this is a debate that's happening everywhere, right? And the question is, it's, it's framing it in a very utilitarian perspective of, of, what, what produces the greater utility for society? Should we treat people and make sure that they don't die, or, or should we let these people die so that the rest of the country survives? It's a very stark and morbid way of looking at things, and I don't know if that's the right way to do it. If the state isn't there to protect you and protect, especially the vulnerable and the diseased at the time, where well, they most need it then why does the state really exist this is essentially why the state exists to fulfill this particular role in every other country where this kind of lockdown has been instituted, the the principles that they followed is to try and address this kind of gap in, in wages, in earning potential, losses of jobs, and access to food and other nutritional services during this period. They have instituted programs to ensure that that gap is is plugged by the state because this is the responsibility of the state. Um, in the U.S., um, unemployment claims have gone up considerably over the last couple of weeks. Uh, food banks have been uh, have been greatly utilized by most people. In the UK, the government has announced 80% wage subsidy for people who have who are not able to go to work right now or for companies who are laying off people. In India, initial steps are being taken, but there's a lot that can be learned from places like Kerala, for instance, which have done a fantastic job. At the same time as they were instituting lockdown measures, they also announced a fantastic economic package to ensure that people don't either go without the capacity to buy food, or if they don't have that capacity anyway, then delivering food to those who are already quarantined as well. So there's lots of lessons that can be learned in how to handle this without having to frame this in this kind of binary of should we let people die or should we let the economy thrive?
2: Atif, you want to weigh in on that? I completely agree with and This goes back to the start of the discussion when we had fixed numbers of 30 million dying. I think what we, just as Bhargav said, the, the, the process for any... Uh, model or simulation or any process has a fixed or some sort of expected pathway right you have the disease then you have the social impact these things will come it's not uh, it's not a matter of will if they'll come they will come the idea is to tackle things appropriately and plan for things that come up down that pipeline if we handle the self quarantine the social distancing thing appropriately the the need to have that distance period of self-isolation is shortened. If we don't do it, it'll constantly be out where we don't know if, if there's virus load that's in the community is gone, do we still need to keep things going? And just like Bhargav said, I think the role of the government is to understand the impact of how to get people the needs and necessities during that period, but also plan when people do go back to the day-to-day livelihoods, how do, how, how do we get things back up and running? One of the key things that we're working with here is uh, religious groups. It's really hard to say, don't come for prayers, uh, don't have social gatherings and things like that. But I think the messaging that's needed is we need to understand that this short-term period is important. We also need to provide resources to everyone, economic passages, um, I I mean, um, economic stimuluses, the right messages from the right social leaders to help that Messaging go through saying this will pass and we need to have the right things in place as this passes downstream to get uh, people back up and running I don't like the the idea that we need to have X number of people die to save everybody else That's just a very reductionist way of thinking and that's what's gotten a lot of the countries in trouble I see
0: now um... Anything on this entire virus mutating once, you know, these I know I'm I'm now going into you both may have smirks on your face. I can't see you, but you can say I'm I'm getting this from the films that I watch. But doctor, we've got the vaccine. No, but the virus has mutated. Is that shit happening? I mean, can this mutate or is it stable? Does it remain the same or does that only happen with Laurence and and Gwyneth Paltrow?
1: (laughs) So so I don't know if you want to answer that question.
2: You can, so it's it's a probability game, right? If it happens, there's a probability that it it will happen, it won't happen. The the most, the highest chance of a virus mutating are in movies, because they have to finish the movie in one and a half hours, the virus has to mutate in that time span. But yes, if that scenario does happen, it will happen at some point, we just have to tackle one problem at a time. And right now, the problem is, we need to get People healthy enough to stay at home, people who might be at risk in, people who are critical into critical care. When the vaccine goes out, there might be side effects of it. We have to deal with it. If the therapeutics develop, we have to deal with those side effects. If there is a mutation due to that, then we handle that when it comes. So there has been no mutation yet? We haven't had any papers and no one's done the work on it. If there's a mutation that's changing the spread and the immunity duration, we, as scientists, I haven't read any papers on it. Bhargav, have you read something about it? Uh,
1: not that I'm aware of. I think there are minor mutations that people are witnessing just through the sequencing that's being done in different parts of the world, but nothing significant that has changed how infectious the disease is or how severe the cases are.
0: I see. Um, now, uh, if you guys want to talk about anything, I have two more specific questions. But before I come to those, we close with those. I've taken 40 minutes of your time already. but. Uh, All that you've seen in how the media has covered it, Uh, you have any critique, Uh, you know, you can go one after the other, what we should take seriously, what we shouldn't, because that's all we get, that's all we're consuming day in and day out. So what is useful and what is noise? Um, Bhargav, you want to go first and then Atif can come in?
1: Sure. Uh, There are two things, right? I think one Um, As has already mentioned, I think the focus on the numbers is is kind of excessive and I think we should focus more on what needs to be done both at an individual and a systemic level. Two things that have really kind of bothered me over this time. One is um, people who are not epidemiologists or people who don't have experience with infectious disease modeling really going out of their way to play around with data to come up with hot takes. I think that has been a, a consistent problem all, all over the world. I think in the U.S. especially, a lot of people have have generated conspiracy theories of some kind or the other. Um, there have, there has been gross misunderstanding of how how infectious diseases spread, and people have understood for themselves that oh because I have a background in some kind of quantitative science, I know what I'm doing. That's not necessarily the case. These people study for 20, 30 years to do what they're doing. It's better to respect what they're doing. The second is the purveyors of, of, of general hot takes. I know that in the initial weeks of the outbreak, there were a, a spate of... of Terrible articles, both in the US and in India. I saw work published by people like Tom Friedan, for instance, who's just this term, tremendous hot take generator. And there's um, there was an article that was published in Mint, I believe, which also received a lot of flack. I think it's important to recognize that there. Getting the right voices out into the public domain at this point is really essential because if you're putting contrary messages out and if you're not, if there's no consistency in how you're trying to address this issue, people are going to get confused. And if you have confusion, then you don't have proper following of, of existing guidelines like, for instance, social isolation and lockdown and quarantine and things like that. So there, there needs to be some kind of consistency in messaging. I think it's important that the media doesn't succumb to this need for having contrary voices just because they need to be there. Hmm. I see.
2: Atif, um, the only thing, the only two points I would add is, I think the media's role in this is to, as scientists, we sit on our own pedestals and we tend to forget that not everyone understands the words coming out of our mouth, and um, that's. And you can speak to my wife about it. She, She understands half the stuff I say, even though she's smarter than I am. I think the media's role is to help take that message and put it in a way that people understand. And that messaging has to come both in terms of keeping things as they are, giving scenarios as they are, but also helping people understand what's coming up downstream. I think that's something that's missing consistently is... Uh, an idea, or, or sort of like a guideline on things that are happening. I think the fear, the social mistrust, all the things that we spoke about, comes from not knowing what's what's coming downstream. And it's like you're gambling with your life, and things are happening, and they happen in silos in the government, and you just get the end result of the processes, and you don't know how things change. So I think helping people understand this is one step in a, in a in a long game and help them understand the long game the second thing i think that's consistently missing is this idea that this process is fluid everything that comes out even though it changes next week is not fake news or lies it's just this the way that things going is so fluid even people who know um what they're saying can make mistakes and that's perfectly fine it's, it's not that they're coming from a bad place it's just things change and things grow and it's good to know that the fluidity has some sort of pr- process behind it as well. And we need to keep in mind that, yes, uh, last week this happened. This week we jumped into a heightened state of uh, of security, even though we told you last week things might not go, go that way, but we, we had to. And that's fine. I think creating a message around that fluidity is something that the media should do as well. I think that probably has something to do with the digital age and the age of media
0: wherein of these binaries that are you pro-Trump, are you pro-Modi, are you anti-Trump or anti-Modi, are you liberal or are you conservative, are you a bhakto? are you a tard? and therefore I think people dig their heels in and don't allow for the fluidity that Atif was talking about, which in things like this and especially in science you know, is is a ever-evolving thing. So
1: would if you I may, if that- i can add i think there's been a lot of actually really good reporting in india as well in print i think there's a there's a the health health beat reporters in india are generally quite good and all of them are women which is also fantastic i think they they do an absolutely brilliant job a lot of them i think they don't get um as much um coverage generally otherwise but i think it's it's great that they, they're getting center stage to some extent i think Television, I don't watch much of it. So perhaps you could tell us. I haven't seen this week's news since either. So perhaps you could tell us how they've been doing.
0: Well, Bhargav, honestly, I have, you know, really reduced my television consumption. And I have my, you know, team to thank because they've started doing it for me since we've grown from five people to about 25, 30 now. Uh, my, My television watching has come down. Poor Manisha does most of it. Snigdha does a lot of it. So I have them to thank. And I'm actually going to come to the whole um, uh, mental health uh, question as well. But before I come to that, this interesting point that uh, both Bhargav and Arthiv you raised of this fluid situation. I'm just curious as people who know probably more than any of our listeners, is the criticism of the WHO a bit over the top that now, especially in India, they're saying, oh, why should we listen to them? They got it wrong earlier. They said, chill out about it. And they, you know, People have put screenshots of WHO advisories that had initially said that this is not such a big deal. You don't have to, you know, take it as seriously. I'm paraphrasing. They didn't say don't take it seriously. But there was no such, you know, red flag that was put out. And now uh, from some of the usual suspects who just like bashing everything and everybody, you know, from not here, from the US or the West and everything is conspiracy. Would you say that criticism is unjustified or to an extent WHO did screw up? And this entire political motive that there are wheels within wheels, and those conspiracy theories of someone is pulling the WHO strings. why don't you
2: start, and I'll follow up. Okay,
1: so I think it's it's probably a bad idea to think about why the WHO or to as to attribute some kind of conspiracy to why the WHO has approached this issue in a particular way or not in my own personal opinion i thought they did a, they've done a decent job with approaching this i think they've done a far better job than they did with the previous ebola outbreak for instance which received a lot of criticism from around the world in this case i think the focus has been primarily because of the fact that this outbreak started in china and china suppressed a lot of the data initially and i think china should be held accountable for that but the idea that the WHO is some kind of governmental international governmental organization which can hold china accountable is just ludicrous i mean the WHO is an organization that's comprised of member states and they can only give advice if member states ask for it or if they share data with them, they can make sense of that data for them. WHO is not an organization that can go and impose its will on anybody. If China shares a certain amount of data, the WHO can only make a judgment based on what data has been shared. So I don't understand this criticism specifically of the relationship with China. I know that it's a it's an easy, easy thing to beat them over the head with. But on the whole i would say that they've actually done a much better job with this outbreak than they have with previous instances
0: but would you say that they took it a little lightly earlier in like December? No,
1: but, i mean if you only have x amount of data coming in you can only make sense of what data you're receiving right if china had initially not suppressed uh data with regard to the outbreak in wuhan i'm sure the reaction would have been completely different i think when that data became more public i think the stance completely changed i think we should we should recognize that i think this is this goes back to the question of what atip was talking about as well which is um we are we're, we're dealing with a situation that's extremely fluid and that's uncertain and i think we as Generally, as human beings and people who focus on policy to some extent, really dislike being in in uncertain situations, and I think it's it's um, it's a challenge because science essentially works within this realm of uncertainty. We try our best to put forward what data we believe is credible and useful and is actionable. If that data changes, the 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 actions associated with that also have to change, and I think that's what we have to recognize with this issue of the WHO.
2: Um, the only thing I would add there is that. When you, so when we talk of these simulation models, I, I focus more on the system science that goes behind it. I think a lot of lot of the time, just like Bhargav said, when you build these models, you're working in the realm of what information you have as as how much variability on that information your re- results are producing. But what really the messaging should be on, I believe, is the fact that you need to help people understand that process on the fact that given... This much of information, given what we know, given all the experts that we have, these are our recommendations at, at, at day 10. Now day 20 comes, we know so much more, we, we reran our scenarios, this is what we think right now. It's very different from day 10, but because from day 10 to day 20, we've had XYZ added into it. I think because the processes that go in between are so drastic and people feel people won't understand it, when you see those split Times of day 10 and day 20, and pick those tweets and threads out, it seems like people have backpedaled or the messaging is very different. In, in actuality, it's just evolving and changing situations with more data, more knowledge, more people coming in. That has, in that string of events, day 10, day 20 are definitely linked. It's just, I think WHO and all organizations focus on that action oriented piece a lot more and spend less time explaining the process over time. I see.
0: Now, uh, coming to the mental health, I know Dr. Adam, you've done a lot of work in this space. I mean, now this lockdown, I was accused of being very insensitive in a tweet that I'd put out. And I guess to an extent it was an insensitive tweet. I had said that this is on the first or the second day of the lockdown. I was just in bed, you know, stressing about what's gonna happen in the next few months. We got all sorts of dire news from friends who are in the financial sector about brace for an economic calamity, collapse. 50-60% of companies that are, you know, less than X amount turnover are going to fold up by the end of the year. So, and then I was just going on Twitter and I was, you know, seeing that this is and people are still saying Muslims have spread it, so and so was saying, you know, this one is not doing this, so and so Now, I was just thinking, yeah, that this is happening on first day. Pe ye ho gaya hai. 20th day, you you know what they'll start saying on social media. So I said that this is like a big boss. You know, like I understand to a certain extent, big boss is a television event and it's scripted. But I do believe that being enclosed in a house with 10 people does lead to a psychological and social deterioration. And we've all experienced it if you've gone for, you know, long treks so or you've been in atypical environments with just a bunch of people. And, uh, you know, if you've gone to high altitude trekking, that happens, you see people change their behavior changes, uh, they were not the people who you knew earlier. Uh, but how seriously are we looking at some sort of a mental health kind of, not crisis, but an emergency that would need to be tackled with this drastic change in routine, like we, there was a confirmed reported case of one alcoholic committing suicide because he couldn't get alcohol because it was shut. I can understand many of us who have homes where we can have privacy and, you know, everyone has a room for themselves. But a lot of people, I guess, don't. Fifty percent of India lives in one-room hutments. Uh, you know, that's four to five people in one room. How serious is that issue? And is any nation doing anything to address that? Or am I just being too? Um, I- I'm thinking too far ahead about things that are an indulgence and not a necessity.
2: That, that's a great point. I mean, uh, the the whole idea of social isolation extremes for people living on their own, as well as people living in confined spaces with multiple people and lack of privacy, mental health is a definite concern. And I think right now, it's not up and and center in any of the concerns that people have, but they are both private, not-for-profit NGOs focusing on this. I think the key concern that comes up for mental health, not only in times of of, um, this disease, is what happens to people who don't have the right support structure, at home, outside home to continue doing what they have to do, continue your medication, continue getting your groceries. So the mental health aspects is something that we will see having ramifications after this. Companies like Rose, the the one that we co-founded, are doing things around it. There are multiple companies trying to focus on meditation, trying to get people to have virtual communities. Again, these are uh, very virtual touch points. This, this doesn't work in large populations that, that that need immediate social support when it comes to daycare, when it comes to people with disabilities. So that, mm. that mm. mental uh, burden is something that we will see uh, for quite a long time to come. Margav, you want to weigh in
1: on that? Yeah, no, I think those are all great points. I think just to just to add to it, I think from our own personal experience, I think we all have uh, members of our family, for instance, who are having to having to deal with this in very different ways. I know I have friends, for instance, who have children who are young, very young children who are sitting with them at home the whole day. And I think if you're trying to do um, a job and go to school and take care of your child for a whole day, I think it becomes immensely taxing on you both mentally and physically. I think it's um, even though we are all kind of privileged and sitting within this academic environment, I think it's important to recognize that there is this entire dimension of mental health that really needs to be thought about. I think the other aspect that we really, really reckoned with, um, when Harvard initially announced that we were shutting down all, all classes and everything was going online and students were given three days to vacate and go back home was what if these people don't have, um, other set support structures, but essentially what if they're going back to situations at home, which are not conducive to living a healthy healthy life what mm. if they have families that are broken in some way or what if they have abusive parents in some ways or what if they have some kind of situation where they're unable to do any of the work that they're expected to do for school all of those things were things that harvard reckoned with and i think they they took a call that this was probably best in spite of all of those consequences and i think they've tried to make mental health resources available for students and for faculty members but i think it's a um, you are already putting strain on on an on, on a on a fragile system as it is i think the the waiting times for a lot of these services are are months and so we probably have to rely on services like what artsif and um, colleagues are providing
0: right um and other than the adults who have to take care of kids and work and you know do the housework etc i i do think you know on kids i was having a chat with my niece and nephew uh, they are 15 and 10 and uh, You know, she was saying, is this like my spring holiday is this? And is this what summer holiday is also going to be? Uh, Is this life for the next four months? Uh, You know, we can't play football. You know, they're very outdoorsy kids. They're very sporty. We had planned a holiday that has all gone. So I was just saying that there was an entire generation that I don't mean boast in a negative way, but that could boast that we lived through the Great Depression, uh, you know, American generation or like my father and my dadi, we lived through the partition. Um, We came from Lahore. Here. So life can't throw anything at us that is worse than that. So there was certain resilience. So I was saying you kids are lucky that, uh, you know, probably the worst crisis to hit the world in several generations has come at a time in your formative years. And probably it'll make you stronger and better people. I mean, I guess I was just trying to cling to a silver lining. <laughs> you think, uh, I, I mean, this generation, you know, we took our childhood for granted, but... My God, yeah. Can you imagine kids not being allowed to go out? I mean, what about that mental? I mean, will it make them stronger and better? Or do you think it could actually be a mental health issue for kids?
2: I think think the idea of resilience that you spoke about is really key here. I think um, it's it's good to have changes from equilibrium. Like you have your day-to-day things and you have your yearly things, but it's good to shake the system up sometimes and see how people respond. I think it really comes... Resilience at a community and... A family level comes down to how you how you respond to those shocks i think as families and as societies be it cultural or religious we need to work with uh, our communities to help give the right information for people to respond to those shocks um, i think having kids child rearing um, is a lot of burden especially in the states for just parents to do since so, you have friends and families to help you do it and i think right now the messaging on what those things need to go out need to come from other people as well. And I think as a community, if you find other people's friends and other friends are doing the same thing sitting at home, there are alternate ways to engage and bond with people who are also sitting at home and not going out and playing soccer. It's just how do you respond and adapt to get back a new equilibrium that you as a community can go forward with is what resilience is. It's not staying the same.
1: Not good. No, I don't think I have anything to add to that. I think it's just um, we'd all, all at one point of time, like you say, talk about how we lived through the COVID shutdown. (laughs) But it is what it is.
0: Yeah, so I guess our generation probably had it best. No partition and uh, no COVID as kids. Uh, I think we had the most peaceful time. But um, thanks, guys, for your time. Really appreciate it. I hope to do this again with you. I will say, and I'm not just flattering you because you guys keep News Laundry afloat. This has been an extremely satisfying conversation. I feel I've learned so much. I feel I can go armed with a more rational response to things when I talk about COVID. Uh, Thanks. Stay safe. And uh, I hope you guys can do this again in a week or two, um, if you could find the time. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, Adnan. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent.